Welcome to This is Type 1, real-life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for 23 years. By day, I'm a process analyst in the power industry, and by night, I'm an author, blogger, and virtual assistant. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had type 1 for 7 years. I love hiking and painting, and I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my future and learn everything I can about it. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 12 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, I'm talking with our friend Alex Vickers about insulin and other hormones. Jessie is actually out for a few weeks dealing with a personal family matter, so she won't be joining the discussion. But before we start, I am going to share my fail of the week and a hack for everyone. So for my fail, pretty much as soon as I shared that G6 sensor restart hack, Dexcom started sending out the new generation of transmitters, and those seem to have closed the restart loophole. I changed out transmitters a few weeks ago, and I think I've only successfully started one sensor on it. The last two I tried to restart ended up with that you cannot restart your sensor error message. And the only other time I've gotten that message was when I forgot to set a timer between skipping the code and entering the code. So now I'm going to have to be a lot more careful about when and where I restart just in case it doesn't take. And this is happening on the transmitters that start with 8.1. I'll be experimenting with some ways to restart on this transmitter over the next few months, and then I'll report back if I manage to get it to work. The restart trick from episode 5 still works on transmitters starting with 8.0, and that's the old one. For our diabetes hack this week, are you allergic to sensor adhesives? I know that a lot of diabetics are actually allergic to the adhesives from sensors and the sites, so it makes it really difficult to wear those. But Adam Brown from Diatribe has this tip. If you get adhesive allergies, try spraying Flonase on the skin before inserting the sensor. Others recommend applying a Band-Aid tough pad to the skin first and then inserting the sensor right through it. So if you're having problems with sensor allergies, you might try that. And now we're going to welcome Alex onto the show. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Technical difficulties. I'm sorry. That's okay. So thank you for joining us. Could you give us a short summary of who you are, what you do, and what role diabetes plays in your life? All right. Well, I am a pediatric nurse and certified diabetes educator. I also live with type 1 diabetes for, well, I guess approaching eight years now. I think I was diagnosed around when Jesse was diagnosed. Okay. Yeah. Jesse's uh, diaversary was yesterday, actually, since we're recording this on the 28th. Okay. So mine's in December, New Year's Eve, actually. Oh, man. The day Voldemort was born. (laughs) Do you have an interesting diagnosis story? Because it did happen on New Year's Eve. You know, actually, I I kind of do. And I'm I'm glad that you asked because my diagnosis was a little unconventional. I was home from college. I got diagnosed my first quarter of college. I was 19. And... I was just having the classic symptoms, you know, the polyuria, going to the bathroom a lot, polydipsia, drinking a lot, and polyphagia, eating a lot. I was also losing weight. I had an acid taste in my mouth from ketones. I would get leg cramps all the time. So I was definitely displaying symptoms. 
I went to the emergency room after seeing a doctor and the medical professionals in the emergency room, and I quote, they said, you don't really look like you have type 2 diabetes, but you are too old to have type 1 diabetes. What? So they, I know. So they didn't check for ketones. They didn't give me any insulin. They gave me some IV fluids and a bottle of metformin. <laughs> I know. It was, and see, like, medical professionals. But I went back to school for a week, and then I called my mom, and I said, I can't read my textbooks. My eyesight is just way too blurry. I don't know what to do. I finally went to another doctor, and then they said, oh, no, no. <laughs> you need to start insulin. They ran the proper tests. They checked for antibodies, and they discovered that I have type 1 diabetes and not type 2. Wow. Honestly, I... I... I'm I'm always astonished when I hear these stories that doctors are just dismissing it. It happens a lot. Like you said in another podcast, it sounds like it looks like flu. I wasn't demonstrating flu-like symptoms, but, you know, looking back as a diabetes educator, if somebody told me what was happening, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you have diabetes and please go to the doctor now. Yeah. So... When you were diagnosed, were you already planning to pursue nursing or did that come after? I was pursuing nursing. I knew for a long time I wanted to be a nurse, but I didn't decide to become a diabetes educator until maybe my last couple quarters of nursing school. I actually was very, very angry and sad for a long time. And I really wanted nothing to do with diabetes. And it really took a lot of like counseling, a lot of you know, looking deep within myself before I realized that, you know, this, this is a part of my life. And even though it's a struggle, sometimes it does, it does make me a better person. I'm so glad you, you mentioned that because mental health problems are a really big problem with the younger type ones, like they're diagnosed when they're old enough to remember not having it. Mm-hmm. And young enough that it's still going to be all of their lives because that that's, I think, a major driver for burnout because you oh, yeah. remember what it was like before. Mm-hmm. And I could I mean, I could talk about mental health all day with diabetes because I mean that and eating disorders, that was a big, a big thing. Like shortly after I got type one, I was diagnosed with an eating disorder. I, I dropped 70 pounds after my diagnosis. Oh, wow. So, Yeah, it was really, it was a real struggle for a long time. But I mean, now looking into my life, I, I know that type one makes me more resilient. It led to a career and friends that I absolutely love. And though I would probably, you know, if somebody offered me a cure right now, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'd take it. But I could imagine that I would almost miss the part of me that has type one. I feel exactly the same way. Like I would, I would take a cure any day. But if I had the opportunity to go back and save my two-year-old self from diagnosis, I wouldn't do it because there's just so much, so many people that I've met from it. I know, I know. It's so it's it's just a tricky thing to think about, but it doesn't it doesn't define us. But in a way, it kind of does define me in a positive way. I would say because I, I do diabetes all day <laughs> at work. Oh yeah, yeah. I, my friends are diabetic and it really did lead to a lot of positive things. Very nice. So when you were first diagnosed, what was the hardest thing to adjust to? 
probably the hardest thing was just the change in how people treated me and the change of how, because I was going to university and I agree with this choice now, but my parents decided to have me go to a community college close to home instead. So it was like something, an illness that I could not actually physically see on myself was affecting my life so much. And I, and I didn't get like education like we do for pediatric patients. So I didn't know a lot of things. I really didn't know that I could, what I could eat and what I couldn't eat. So like we know society going out to lunch is such a like social thing to do. And it really affected my social life. And people were like, well, can you do this? And I'm like, I don't know. Can I? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Not, not really knowing if you can do something, but being willing to try. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it was the social definitely, or just, it it did change my life a lot at first. It kind of consumed everything, which is not how it should be or what it is now. But at first it was like, oh, okay. Now this is, my life is 90% diabetes and, you know, 10% fun. (laughs) So that's (laughs) not the case anymore though. It's like 90% fun, right? Yes, it's 90% fun. So did did you immediately tell all your friends that you had it? And how did they react? Well, yes, I did. And actually, since it was New Year's Eve, when I got diagnosed, I was planning on hanging out with my friends that night. And I had to call them from the ER. And I was like, um, I'm in I'm in the ED. I can't, I can't come come today. So they knew right away. Okay. And they specifically started treating you differently or did you, did you take it upon yourself to educate them as you were learning about it yourself? I educated them as I was, cause I wasn't, I think at first I was a little, a little embarrassed, especially because I had to leave school, but I, because I was leaving university, I actually, I had to tell everybody I had to, everyone had to know um, and I had to explain to them, you know, I, this is, this is why, and this is, and I had to be like, okay, it's not, I didn't do this to myself. I, I don't quite understand. I'll explain it to the best of my abilities, but this is what it is. And now that you're a certified diabetes educator, you can explain it extremely well. I can. That is what I do for a living, explaining <laughs> diabetes. <laughs> So Jesse and I did an episode on insulin in episode six, where we kind of gave a rough summary of uh, what it is and why it's important. Did you happen to listen to that episode? I did. And the word you were trying to say was acanthosis. Acanthosis. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. We talk about that all the time at work. Acanthosis. They have acanthosis or they don't. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So as kind of an endocrine specialty nurse. Do you think we did that episode justice with insulin? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I enjoyed listening to it. Oh, good. So we didn't really miss anything? No, I don't think so. Okay. Do you have anything to add about about insulin specifically with, you know, your medical background and all that? Well, I guess I just wanted to comment. I did like, I don't know if it was in episode six, but I did like what you had to say about like when people are diagnosed and they're told that they can eat everything that they want to eat and how that affects their you know their life going forward using insulin. I actually, 
I would not tell any child with or without diabetes that they can eat whatever they want to eat. I, I really teach a heart healthy diet and really just living a healthy lifestyle. I said, yes, you can like have a birthday cake or yes, you can do these things. But would I tell you to eat ice cream every day? No, I wouldn't <laughs> eat ice cream every day. I would like to eat ice cream every day for every meal, but that would, you know, that's not how we live a healthy lifestyle. So I just appreciated you bringing that up. Thank you. I like that meme. It's like when you're an adult, you can do whatever you want. And that includes staying up until 3 a.m. eating all of the ice cream you want. But then you feel like crap the next morning and you have to deal right. with it. <laughs> and I feel like we've all done that the moment we had freedom. We're like, and here is a gallon of ice cream and I'm staying up till four. And then you're realizing, oh, this is why my parents told me not to do this as a child. Pretty much. Mine was uh, like an entire bag of puff Cheetos while binge watching Buffy in college. Ooh, that sounds good. <laughs> Felt great at the time, but the next morning was never fun. <laughs> no. <laughs> so besides insulin, what other hormones do you see affect type 1 diabetics, either positively or negatively? Well, I think there's a ton of hormones in your body that raise your blood sugar and only one that brings it down. Ah, um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I think you guys were talking about how you brought up Dawn Phenomenon. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Of, yep. And a reason that is caused is just because the timing of when hormones are released, they're released different times of the day, during the night and during the morning, you get an increase in growth hormone, stress hormone as your body's trying to heal itself. So that causes a little insulin resistance in the morning. So a lot of, I would say probably a majority of the children that I see, their insulin pump settings are a little bit higher in the morning. I think that's pretty common, especially for growing children. Their growth hormone is being released more. So it's that's a big thing. But yeah, any form of stress. <laughs> when I was taking my, my CDE exam, my certified diabetes education exam, I started the exam. I woke up a little bit higher than normal, like what, mid 100s. And I looked at my decks after a four-hour exam. Without any carbs in my system, I biked to 300. And oh my ended, gosh. And then ended around like 280. So it really, I mean, stress does play a huge part. And that's just the hormones being released. Yeah, the cortisol. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like your story right there. Because it's it reminded me of when I got my blood drawn earlier this month for my A1C and all the sorts of stuff that my endo wanted. And the night before, I was like, I have to not go low. So I'm going to do a temp basal to keep my number higher. And then I ended up being like 150 all night. And my pump alarm goes off every half an hour with a high. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was worried about going low. But then I ended up being high all night. And I was just like, I guess I chose this. But it was the stress from like the coming blood draw that kept my number up. Didn't have anything to do with the temp basal. It was all the stress. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I, I like never am asked to do fasting labs. So I'm just like, eh. <laughs> really? I can yeah. like, those are the only ones she ever asks for is fasting labs. I don't know. My endo is like, she's like, well, we'll draw all your cholesterol, but you don't have to fast for that. I'm like, okay, I don't have to <laughs> fast. <laughs> so thank you. I probably wouldn't have done it anyway. <laughs> Well, I, I don't really eat dinner anyway, so fasting isn't a problem for me. It was just the, the risk of going too low and then having to have like a smarty to bring it up because that would have not been fasting. Oh, yeah. One smarty. I think you would have probably been okay. 
Well, that's good to know. Hear it coming from a, a CDE. I don't know. Don't quote me on that, but like, I don't know. I think he'd be okay. <laughs> that's good to know. So uh, kind of related to Dawn phenomenon, or maybe not related, but it reminds me, the honeymoon period. That mm-hmm. one, can you talk about the honeymoon period, what it is and how long it kind of lasts? Yeah, and it can really last different times for different people. I mean, really, it can last a couple months or a year. I feel like in my experience, I, it probably lasted like two years because I noticed a huge need for more insulin after the two-year mark. But basically what happens is your body is still producing insulin early in your diagnosis. So you, your beta cells are being destroyed, but it takes a little bit of time for your immune system to hit all those beta cells on your pancreas. There's quite a few. So once you start insulin from the outside and your body gets a little bit of a chance to normalize, your body is like, oh, okay, I think I can handle this now. And your pancreas is like, I'm still here. I'm trying. I'm trying. But then you're at higher risk for lows because you're giving insulin in injection and your pancreas is still like spitting out a little insulin here and there, but it doesn't really do it at appropriate times because it's broken. So that's really what the honeymoon is. And then eventually your immune system works more on those beta cells and then they are gone. And you guys were talking about the C-peptide test. So then later on, if you do a C-peptide test, it will be able to kind of detect how much your pancreas is still working because you you can't just test insulin levels because if you're type 1, you're taking insulin. So that wouldn't work. But C-peptide would tell you how much natural insulin you're making. Right. So then eventually you just need a little bit more from the outside to function. And then you need all from the outside. And then you need all from the outside to function. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Last year I read Dr. Bernstein's Diabetes Solution, and in it he mentioned that the earlier you're diagnosed, the longer you should start taking additional insulin to help that honeymoon period kind of extend so that the pancreas isn't like, ah, I'm losing all of my beta cells. Do you agree with that? I've heard, like, I've heard that as soon as you, if you get on insulin quicker, your honeymoon extends. I don't know why. I've also heard that if you get diagnosed older in your life, your honeymoon extends than when you're like a two-year-old and you get diagnosed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When, when you're Colleen <laughs> and you get diagnosed or when you're Alex and you get diagnosed, because I think my honeymoon, I, I would probably say, lasted about two years and my endocrinologist actually did draw a C-peptide and I was like, oh, I'm still producing my own insulin two years, two years into my diagnosis. So I don't know why, but that's what I've heard. Interesting. Okay. So kind of moving on to the next question, without risking any like identifying details, what are some of the most common problems you see in your pediatric type 1 patients? Well, when you're a pediatric, you have uh, your parents involved so many times. Uh, Yes. And a lot of times parents are scared of low blood sugar. So I do have some families that purposely run their child's blood sugars in the 200s. and And we try so hard to convince them that, yes, we need to have a healthy respect for low blood sugar, but we need to also treat high blood sugar. And it's not appropriate to keep your child running above target all the time. So that's a big thing. It really, mental health is a huge, huge barrier sometimes. 
we have kids, they get so burned out. You're, you're like three times more likely if you have diabetes to have depression. And we, we send kids to counseling all the time. And especially when you're a child, you all you want, especially if you're a teenager, is to be like your peers. And mm. suddenly you're not. So mental health and then parents <laughs> trying to, I mean, it, they love their kid more than anything, but sometimes their anxiety affects their child's diabetes. Yeah. I don't know that I really experienced that because I was diagnosed so young and my parents probably went through that phase when I wasn't old enough to really understand or remember. And then by the time I got to the point where I could remember all that, I was basically taking care of myself. Right. At what age were you starting to take care of yourself since you, you know, diabetes is all you knew? I mean, you were an expert probably by the time you were five or six. Well, I I was actually one of the first campers at Panther Camp to get a pump. So I've been on a pump in one form or another since 2002. And I think around that point was when I kind of started taking it on to myself because I would be in control of the pump. My mom would still help me with changing my sights because those things were scary to change when you're seven years old. But I think by the time I was in junior high was when I basically took over my control, all all of it. And then it was kind of more of a struggle of getting my mom to stop helicoptering before I went off to college. Did you have to kind of relearn to do injections? Because when you got diagnosed, you were kind of young to learn that. And then you were on a pump. Was it ever hard for you to to do injections if you needed to? Oh, no, no. I mean, even now, if my pump is taking forever to bring my blood sugar down, I'll just give a quick injection to kick on a kickstart it. So I I don't think I ever had a problem with injecting when I needed to because I know that the, the pumps are not infallible. And so that was good to recognize early on. That's really good. I always wonder about that with our little kiddos that get diagnosed because they never learn to do an injection because they're, you know, babies. And then we get them on a pump and I'm like, oh, when are you going to learn this skill? Right. Oh, right. So when when I was a lot younger and I got first got on the pump, they told me that or they told us since I probably was too young to really grasp it. But they told us that kids had to have diabetes for a year before they would go on pumps. And now they're just basically shoving pumps at every new diagnosis. Yeah, we, we I mean, we'd like them to have the skill set, either the parent or the kid to do injections. But some families are so savvy. And they're like, okay, we want a Dexcom, you know, yesterday. And we want, <laughs> <laughs> we want a pump within the next like three months. And sometimes they do it. I mean, Dexcoms I, or any type of sensor, I wish I could like hand out like you get diabetes and here is your continuous glucose monitor go but um, (laughs) but pumps I like them to at least have a few months practicing the basic skills before they get on a pump but some families they know and sometimes I go into the I, I meet with new diagnosed families and they're like oh what's that on your belt and I'm like oh that's my insulin pump and sometimes that doesn't help matters too because they want to know oh. what are you wearing do you like it does it help and I'm like of course it helps yeah but then you can't be like showing bias because you're on T-Slim yeah no and and I'll say this I, I mean I my pump works really well for me but I love all the pumps for many different reasons. I think that they all have, you know, pros and cons. It really is a very individual choice. So it would not be fair for me to be like, 
well, I like T-Slim, so that must mean you'll like T-Slim. I know you will like T-Slim, Colleen, because you're on T-Slim, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have to be, I have to tell families that like, I like purple and you might like blue. That doesn't mean that you're going to like T-Slim also. Yeah, I actually really agree with that because for some of the kids at camp, they're, they, they're in love with their Omnipods because if there's no tubing, they get to slap it on and go. And if they're active, there's no risk of ripping it out with the tubing. So it is really a very individual choice and they should be able to choose which pumps they want after trying out a couple. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm wearing an Omnipod with sailing right now because... <laughs> I have my T-Slim, my Dex, I have an Omnipod because I'm trying out the Omnipod Dash right now because I'm certified to train the old Omnipod, but not certified to train the Dash one, which is the touchscreen Omnipod. So that's that's new and exciting. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) Uh, What do you wish your patients or their parents knew at diagnosis, especially if they've come to you a lot later than when they were first diagnosed? I tell them that it's going to feel like this is taking over your life for the first few months. And then you're, you're going to start realizing that you are just who you were before you were diagnosed. And you're just going to have to think a little harder now, but that's just going to make you smarter and more resilient. Aww. We're also, they're also going to be really good at math. Yes. Oh my gosh. You're going to be so good at dividing things by 15. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the starting uh, ratio for the new diabetics nowadays? Pretty much. So if you are under the age of six, you usually start at 30. And if you're above, you start at 15. That's funny. Sometimes they don't leave the hospital at 15, but most of the time they do. What is your favorite part about having type one? My career and friends. I never would have met cool people like Colleen if I didn't have diabetes. (laughs) I love going to Panther camp and volunteering. I was too old to go to diabetes camp by the time I had diabetes, but I I love my career. I love my work family. It, It really has improved my life, I would say. And what about your least favorite part? Going low. I hate going low. I mean, really? I obviously, yeah, I think I don't like being inconvenienced in my life. I, I just don't like having to stop like if I'm doing something. But if you're going to have well-managed diabetes, the chances are you're going to have more lows. And I consider myself pretty well, well-managed. So a couple lows here and there happen. Do you mind sharing your A1C? Yes, I will. Because today or not today, but last time I had my A1C, it was pretty high for me, but maybe not high for other people. My A1C usually fluctuates from mid sixes to mid seven. So it was 7.5 this time. Okay. And that was probably, that was like three months ago. So I have no idea what it is right now. Uh, Okay. I'm probably the opposite of you, right? I really, really hate highs. And so I will gladly take a blood sugar of like 60 if I don't have to deal with a blood sugar over 140. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I obviously don't want to run, run high either. But like I said, I hate having to stop to do things. Like if I'm like out with my friends and we're going for a walk, that doesn't happen so much on a pump anymore. It really did happen on MDI where I was like working out and would get a low. Right. The pump is much better. Basal IQ on the T-Slim really helps. 
I'm excited also, for uh, Control IQ to take care of the high part. Oh, me too. I'm so excited for that. And uh, I just have been looking at all the research about it. I can't wait to hear it when it comes out. I think it's coming out later this year. But Ooh. you never, yeah, no, you never know for sure. But I'm excited. So over the years, how have you kind of changed up your own treatment or care regimen, like your diet, medications, exercise, the stress reduction, from what you've learned going through your CDE and your nursing school? You know, I haven't changed a whole lot. I think when I was initially diagnosed, my whole life changed. I never worked out. I ate whatever I wanted. (laughs) So now I, you know, I work out regularly at least five times a week in the morning. I actually, I do change when I work out. That's a big thing. I used to work out in the evening and then I found that I would wake up in the middle of the night with lows. So I started Mm. working out first thing in the morning before I go to work, which means I have to wake up earlier, but that's okay. So that's a, that's a big change. But besides that, I, I just make sure I pick healthier foods and carb count, which is obviously something I never did before diagnosis. But I was, I kind of was obsessive when I was first diagnosed where like my A1C was in the low fives because I didn't eat. (laughs) So I I eat now. So that's nice. (laughs) Right. Plus now you have uh, Tim's low carb delicious food. Yes. For everybody who knows Colleen's husband, Tim, also being a fellow Hufflepuff, I I adore him and he cooks (laughs) good food, (laughs) came over to my house and made keto crackers, which I ate like popcorn, (laughs) which was wonderful. All of us ate it like popcorn. You put it out on the coffee table and was like free game. And then they all disappeared. I know it was, I like had like five left and I was like, okay, these are mine. (laughs) Nobody else can eat them. So kind of our last couple questions. Do you have any last words of wisdom for our audience? Have fun, live life. I don't know. (laughs) Check your blood sugar, check ketones. If your blood sugar is above 300. Okay. 300 it is. Yes. And if our listeners want to connect with you to ask questions or learn more about what you do or just say hi, uh, where can they reach you? Like your social media handle or if you want to give us an email. Oh, man. Well, my my email, I don't really have any social media besides Facebook. I can give my email. So it's A-Y-T-E-D-E-S-C-H-I at yahoo.com. Okay, and we will give that to our listeners if you are not opposed to that. Yeah, I'm not opposed to that. I will not give any medical advice over email, but if anyone wants to to chat, that would be that would be good and talk about diabetes in terms of just like what's going on in life. That is a good disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, no medical advice off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and we do mention in our intro that this is not medical advice. This is just real life with type 1. Mhm. And I I really obviously I know you and we're friends in real life instead of just like over a podcast, but it's so nice to listen to your podcast and be like, "Hey, I feel like that too. I deal oh. with that too." Oh, good. Yeah, and it's nice to hang out with somebody my own age that has type 1. Doesn't happen all <laughs> Not time. all the little kids. <laughs> I know. Our experiences are a little different when you're yeah. 5 or 27. Yep. So thank you for Alex to come on and do this interview with us. Next up is our Diabetes in the News segment. So it, 
2020 health plans give people access to as much insulin as they need. So beginning in 2020, nationwide Cigna and Express Scripts and three different Minnesota insurance companies, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, Medica and UCARE, will cap total monthly insulin payments for some health plans. And the state of Colorado is also limiting monthly insulin costs for residents. This is a really big win for insulin affordability, and insurance companies are starting to launch policies that cap monthly out-of-pocket expenses to make sure that people can afford as much insulin as they need. In April 2019, Cigna's Express Scripts announced a patient assurance program that will limit insulin co-pays to $25 per month, regardless of how much insulin a person needs to take. Since more than 1.4 million people use Express Scripts to cover their insulin, this is a really big deal. Members of Cigna and Express Scripts can expect this program by the beginning of 2020. It will include short-acting basal insulins made by Lily Nova Nordisk in Sanofi, although the product list isn't yet available. And we will link to this in the show notes. It's from an article by Diatribe. And this is 100% an amazing step towards insulin affordability. I know multiple diabetics who actually have to get their insulin in Canada because they can't afford it here and they aren't on private employer insurance that's good enough to cover what they need. So big props to those insurance companies for covering this. And now it is time for our question for the audience. So for our type 1 diabetic listeners, what kind of support systems do you have? And if you don't feel like you have one, what kind of support do you need? Jesse and I want to be a resource for you. So that is it for this episode of This is Type 1. Thank you so much to Alex Tedeschi. Sorry, Alex Vickers. She is newly married and now she is Mrs. Vickers. But thank you for coming on as a guest to the show. Remember, if you want to connect with Alex, you can find her at A-Y-T-E-D-E-S-C-H-I at yahoo.com. A-Y-Tedeschi at yahoo.com. We will link that in the show notes because I know it might be hard to spell. So you can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 12. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade and our audio wizard is my husband, Tim. I'm on all social media as at Inspired Forward, and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. Jesse is still on Instagram as at JJ underscore Crystal K-A-T. Please feel free to send her questions or comments you have about Type 1 or the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. And please leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, since that helps other people find us. And be sure to listen in next week when we talk about bad habits to avoid as a Type 1 diabetic. We all have them. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.